0: Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We are on our Faith, Hope, and Love series. I hope you're enjoying this. I certainly am. And this morning, I would like to deal with... Next slide, please. Here we go. The tension's mounting now. Can we get the next slide up? There we go. I'd like to deal with the matter of hope deferred. Hope deferred. And Today, I really feel that the Lord wants us to get into some nitty gritty um, because we're not here to have our ears tickled. We're here for God to do business with us. We're here for God to speak directly into our lives and for it to be personal and for God to help us in our relationship with him and to move us into a, a new place. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs 13 and verse 12. Proverbs 13 and verse 12. This is a a, a, a statement that you will know well. And it's what I really want to explore together this morning. So Proverbs 13 and verse 12 says this. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Read that again. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, ostensibly, when I read that verse, it makes me think that anything that defers the hopes I have is not good. And anything where those hopes come to pass is good. But it's not as simple as that. Life isn't as simple as that. And that's why... It requires our exploration together this morning. So will you come with me on that journey this morning? We're going to turn to a few different Psalms. So I'm going to read these out because it will just take too long to turn to them all. So you can close your Bibles for a moment. Reading from the ESV version. In the last sort of six months or so, I've been reading predominantly the Psalms. So the Lord told me just to read the Psalms in my my quiet times with him. And I've been reading them. And what struck me again is just the impact of hope deferred, and the psalms so wonderfully lay bare the heart of the psalmist, the frustrations, the angst, the terror, the fear, the joy, the victory, the whole gambit of human emotion that we've all felt at one time or another in our lives, and I've just pulled out a few of these psalms to illustrate the brutal honesty with which predominantly David, but others, speak of hope deferred and the impact it's had on them. Psalm 119 says this, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. Psalm 69 and verse 3. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 42, verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Psalm 22, verses 1 to 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 42, verse 9. I say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? They're quite extreme statements, aren't they? (laughs) But they're where uh, David and some of the sons of Korah, some of the psalm writers, were at when they wrote that psalm. There's nothing untrue about them. They're they're what we go through. And I know some of those things will resonate uh, with all of us at different points of our lives. When hope gets deferred, it can have a devastating impact on us. Initially, it's disappointment, and then often what follows is doubt. Sometimes we find that we have dreams that are dead, just dead dreams that we start to believe will never come to pass. Sometimes it's a denied future. It's maybe a future that you thought was yours and now seems is just not going to be the case, whether it's... Something you saw yourself doing or people that you thought you saw yourself with for the rest of your life. And the worst thing is that can lead to disillusionment. And worse still, it can lead to despair. Starting off on quite a bum note here, aren't we? (laughs) Don't worry, it gets better. For example, David also said this. Be strong and let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. He was talking to himself there, predominantly, but he's talking to us as well. Be strong and let your heart, let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord. I'd like to consider three things this morning. I'd like to consider why we experience deferred hope, why our hopes get deferred. I'd like to talk about how it happens. How it happens, how God uses it, and how we deal with it. And then lastly, I'd like to talk about what God achieves in all of this in our lives, which is really, really precious. So let's start with the why. The big question, the elephant in the room is, why does God let it happen? How many times have you asked yourself that? How many times have you heard others say that? Why did God let this happen? I don't understand why God has let this happen in the first place. So we really need to explore why we experience these things in the first place. And the simple answer to this question I have come to is that this is part of God's plan of restoration. Let me explain for those of you that maybe are not familiar with the word restoration. Peter uses it in Acts 3 verse 21 when he's giving the very first sermon in a church. And he talks about Jesus remaining in heaven until the time for the restoration of all things. And he's talking there about God's plan to restore everything in creation To his original intended design, not just that, but to take it on to his original intended purpose. So there's two elements there. The first one is to restore something that is now broken, something that is not functioning as it should be, but not just restoring it like you'd maybe restore a piece of furniture, but actually to take it beyond that point to what it was originally intended for. In other words, to get it back on track to its original purpose. And I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis, please. Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to just take a quick look at God's original intention and design for creation. Of which we are the chief part. It's not arrogant to say that. It's in the design of God that we are the chief part of creation. And we're going to see exactly why. Genesis 1 and verse 26. wait for the rustling to die down as everyone gets there here we go verse 26 then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then just go to chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We've got three things here. The first thing is that we were made in the image of God in order that we could express that image throughout all of creation. We're made in the image of God. The second thing is that we were given a command to multiply and be fruitful. In other words, God wanted that image to then spread throughout the whole of creation and for his image to be the pattern that would spread through creation. And the third thing, very importantly, is that God wanted us to flourish but within the God-given boundaries that he sets us. And let's be clear, they weren't restrictive boundaries. They were pretty big. Everything but that. The only thing that God withheld from us was something which was not good for us. And that's the way God always treats us. Anything he withholds is not good for us. Psalm 34, God withholds no good thing from the righteous. Now we get into Satan's part in all this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Now, two things happen that sow seeds into our DNA that are still with us today. The first thing is this. Satan causes Adam and Eve because they were there together, remember, he causes them both to doubt God's word. He starts to cast doubt over what God has said. He starts to misquote God's word, and then he starts to question God's word. So his first uh, point of attack is to attack what God has said. Then the second thing he does is, he then starts to question God's motive, and says, well, yeah, but God said that because he doesn't want you to have this. So what Satan was trying to do was not only to get mankind to doubt what God had said, but also to mistrust God's motives in saying it. In other words, his intention towards Adam and Eve and all of us who were within Adam and Eve at that point in time. They were our seed and we were in them at that point in time. So the lies began then and it sowed a seed of distrust between mankind and God and we find in the next few verses that then God goes looking for them as was his habit of the day and Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they hide themselves and God saying, why are you hiding yourselves and they were afraid in other words something had come between them and this person that had created them that had given them everything that loved them that fellowship with them and suddenly they were slightly afraid of him so the seed that Satan had planted had done its work So God's work of restoration is now twofold, which is announced in the very next few verses, as you know. The first thing is God's got to deal with the penalty of sin because sin is toxic. When it comes in, it spreads. It's a disease that cannot be contained. And God has to kill it. God has to deal with it and deal with the penalty of sin. And from that moment onwards, everything in his purposes was working towards the point when his son would come and fool the powers of darkness into thinking that they had defeated him only to give him the victory because all of sin and all of the penalty was placed upon his shoulders. And being a man who knew no sin, he was an innocent sacrifice and could pay that penalty once and for all. But the second thing God had to deal with is the consequences of sin. God has paid the the penalty himself for our sin but he can't wipe away the consequences of sin. Think about when you first came to know him. Something changed when you gave your life to Jesus. You'll remember that moment. Everything changed in a moment. But in the days and weeks and months that followed, you were left with the baggage of who you are. I was. Left with so much baggage. And then you start to think, did anything really change then? And then maybe you turned to 2 Corinthians 5.17 and said, yeah, it did, because I've become a new creation. But I've got all of this stuff now that God needs to deal with. And at the heart of all that stuff are the seeds of corruption in Eden of mistrust, that we don't fully trust God's word or his motives and intentions towards us. Now, you might be reflecting on that statement and saying, I'm not sure that's really true. I trust the Lord. I trust him with lots of things. I trust him him with lots of things. And, sorry, this is a timer that's gone off. I don't know why. There we go. I trust him with lots of things in my life. I don't believe that there's a problem of mistrust between me and him. And I think most of the time we can say that's true. But there are times in our lives when that is exposed to not be true. So I'll speak personally that most of the time, I don't think I have a problem trusting the Lord with everything that's going on in my life. But every now and then something will happen and it just tests that relationship of trust. And the place that God wants to restore us to is a place of complete trust, complete trust in him, so that we never ever for a second doubt that he is for us and on our side, and that he will work all things together for our good. Never, ever doubt that for a second. And that's why it's a journey. It takes time. So what I want to do is, is just talk a little bit about the how. How the, the um, deferral of hope impacts us, how we handle it, and how God uses it. So God needs to do with this issue of trust between him and man. And you would think, well, if I were God, I think I would probably start by just giving us lots of reassurance. I just need to, every day, William, I am God, and I'm just going to reassure you every day, I'm for you, I'm with you, you never need to doubt me. Whatever happens, whatever comes into your life, you never need to doubt me for a second. But God doesn't seem to do that. Well, he does that, but he doesn't just do that. Because that won't sort the problem out no matter how much reassurance i get there's something in me that still every now and then will just mistrust him will just question the way god is doing things and it comes in the form of that question why did god let this happen to me why why did god let this happen to them to the ones i love why did god let why does god let this happen in the world that he loves And the question will come back. No, instead, the way God deals with the problem is to handle it head on. God will lead us into situations and circumstances that actually cause us to think the opposite. That he isn't for us. That he's forgotten us. Like the psalmist said at the beginning, David was a great man of God who knew God's own heart And he questioned, where are you? Why have you forgotten me and forsaken me? Those very words in Psalm 22 are the words that Jesus uttered on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God's way of dealing with the problem is to say, no, we're going to tackle this head on. I'm going to lead you into situations where it will cause you to doubt me. It will cause you to question me and it will cause you to face in yourself this question do you really trust me? Do you really trust me? In his, um, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, the author C.S. Lewis talks about a principle called the law of undulation. The law of undulation. And essentially, it's the fact that we are physical and we're spiritual. So each one of us has a spiritual part to us, our spirit. But we have a physical body, And the spirit within us is able naturally to connect with all that's eternal. So when we're in worship, and if you know the rapture of worship, there will be moments when your spirit is connecting in the heavenlies. And you see things so clearly. And maybe your mind at that point thinks, if only I could feel this way all the time. (laughs) You know that feeling? And you know, because you've been around a while, that maybe... You're not always going to feel that way when the circumstances change. And the reason is because our physical side is still subject to the laws of this world. And it's subject to the physical change of this world. So a part of our natural experience is to experience change, ebbs and flows, ups and downs, in our daily lives in our work, in our relationship, in our friendships, and even in our relationship with God. It goes through ups and downs. The thing is, God uses those ups and downs. And it's so easy for Christians to be fooled into thinking the ups and downs are the problem. You see, the Christian walk is not a straight-line trajectory. It's not a graph with you here and heaven up there and you just keep getting better and better and better and life just keeps getting better and better and better and by the time you enter into eternity you are cruising. It's just not like that, is it? In fact, if you meet a believer who says that they never have any problems, that's a problem (laughs) because life isn't meant to be like that. Jesus said, you will experience trouble in this life. Now, I know that we make bad decisions. I've made countless bad decisions, and I make my own trouble. I make enough of my own trouble. But there's lots of things that were out with of my control, and they still happened. I don't know if you've um, ever walked up a hill where, this has happened to me lots of times, where I've been walking up a hill. I don't walk mountains, but just gentle hills are fine. You're walking up a hill, and you see the peak ahead of you, and... I've walked it and I thought, oh, great. And in my head, I think I'll be there in about five minutes. And then I start to go to the brow of the hill, and then I start to go down. I think, what's happening now? And suddenly, I'm starting to go back downhill. And this process goes on. It's cruel, the way hills and mountains are designed. Why can't they just be in a straight line? But they seem to fool us into thinking, yep, I'm going to be at that peak in a minute, and then I'm starting to go back down again. And that really is what life is like. We look ahead and think, that's where I'm going to be in a little while. And then suddenly, we start to go down again. And the thing is, we can't see the down bits. When we look ahead, we only see the up bits. And that's how it should be. Because if I saw all the down bits when I started up the hill, I can tell you this, I'd be turning around and heading back for some coffee. And I probably wouldn't have bothered. But it's the up bits, they're the bits I keep aiming for. They're the bits I keep my eyes on. But the down bits will happen. They will happen. And here is the thing. God has a tendency to allow distance and delay to come into our relationship. Distance, because sometimes it feels like he is far away. And I know the, the old adage, you know, if, if God doesn't feel close to you, you're the one that's moved. I get that. And often that is the case. But I can tell you there's been times in my life where I don't think I've moved and yet God seems further away from me. I've not done anything wrong. David said, I've kept your statutes and yet still you seem far away from me. And it's like God's just allowed some distance to come between us. And often God will allow delay to come. Those things that we've set our sights on and they just don't come when we think they will come. And they don't even come when we think they will come after that, all the time after that. And sometimes we think, are they going to come at all? But we have to remember that God's timetable is rarely aligned with ours. I don't know about you, but my timetable is always different to God's. And he always has to bring me into alignment with when he's going to do things. And for God, the most important moment is in that wait period. It's in the delay, it's in the distance that forms. Because in those periods of time, that's when he's going to deal with the issue of whether I trust him with everything in my life and gets to the bottom of this issue. Back in May, we, I spoke on um, a chord of three strands, faith, hope, and love. And, and hope is an anchor point. Uh, Roger described it at Momentum when he came um, at Momentum, he described it as like a hook that you can hang your faith on. It's a fixed point that with faith you attach yourself to and you pull. And I talked in May about how these three things, hope being the anchor point, faith being the ability to see it and hook onto it, and love being the thing that we need in the moments when hope is obscured. So we have to understand what we're talking about. When we talk about hope, we need to be clear in our minds because to get things confused will not help us. The hope that we have has gone beyond us, the writer to the Hebrew says, beyond the veil, and that's Jesus. And because he's there, that means I will be there. Because he's there, that means you will be there. You have an anchor in eternity, An anchor point in eternity. And everything that will happen to us, each one of us, between now and then, is not an anchor point. It is not a hook. This isn't like a mountain where we fix on hook by hook until we get to the top. We only have one anchor point and it's in eternity. It's at the top. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't other hopes along the way. But if you are holding on to those hopes and pulling on them, They will shift and they will move. And sometimes the anchor point, your eternal future, is the thing that gets obscured. You see, that eternal anchor point says, not only has Jesus paid the price for my sin, but he's made me a child of God. And because he's made me a child of God, that means God is for me. That means all the blessings and all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1. So therefore, because I know that, because that's my anchor point, I expect good things in this life because I'm a child of God. But it also means that God will discipline me. Now we have to be really careful with this word discipline because it's been kicked around a lot, hasn't it, in the last 20, 30 years. I'm not on about hitting you with a stick or making you sit on the bottom stair. I'm on about your Father in heaven, knowing things in you that need to change and leading you into a place where you are forced to face up to them. And that has been my experience walking with him is that he's led me to a place where I have to ask the question, do I trust him with this thing, with this particular thing in my life? What we learn from Galatians 5 and verse 6 is that in those moments, we don't need more faith. You can beat yourself black and blue trying to summon up more faith. Galatians 5 verse 6 says that it's faith working through love. What each of us need in those moments when we cannot see hope is the love of God to come alongside us and reassure us. And say, this is how I feel about you. Yeah, but I can't see the anchor point anymore. There's all these things that have come in the way. I know that. But you need to know that I love you. And I'm going to now reveal it to you in a greater way. You thought you understood my love. You thought you understood the extent and the intensity of my love. But I'm going to give you a fresh wave of revelation of my love. I just want you to close your eyes for a minute. I just feel the Holy Spirit saying in this moment if you want it there is a fresh revelation of my love. I just want you to respond to the Holy Spirit. Just you and him now no one else. There's a fresh revelation of my love. A fresh wave to pour over you. Holy Spirit of God You just bring a fresh wave straight into our hearts right now, Lord. Even if you're not in the room, if you're watching or you're listening, even if you're driving, let there be a fresh revelation of the love of God. Jesus' name, amen, amen. The last thing is what? What does God achieve in us? Let me say this first off. This process that we go through it doesn't mean that God won't give us things. Okay, Don't worry. doesn't mean that God won't bless us with things. doesn't mean that at all. God is for us. I read just this morning, Psalm 56, verse 9, David says this, This I know, that God is for me. What a wonderful confession that we could declare every morning. This I know, that God is for me. And that will be fundamental to my being. We need to be sure of that. And if you're not sure of it, that's the thing that needs dealing with. That's the thing you need to bring to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be sure of it. And when we say that to him, he will then respond and lead us into circumstances where that is tested. Just to be clear. When we ask for that reassurance, he will lead you into circumstances where that is tested. And we have to be prepared for that. However, all those things in life that God will bless us with, that are real, that are perfectly legitimate things of life, they are not the most important thing. And this is what we have to understand. And really, this has to impact our life as believers, especially in the age in which we now live, is that the things of this life the physical things of this life, that is not the most important thing from God. The most important thing is that our relationship of trust is restored fully. Because that is what God is doing in each one of us and he needs to do it in us to prepare us not just to cruise into heaven and then sit down for the rest of eternity. He has stuff for us to do. There is a whole age to come of which we know nothing which God is preparing. And each one of us will have responsibilities in the new age. And God is preparing you for that new age. And a key and essential and central part of that preparation is to bring you back to that relationship of trust in him. Turn with me, if you will, to James 1 and verse 2. James 1. James 1, verse 2. James says this Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. That's what the word means. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing wow there's a lot in there isn't there first thing to say is this when testing comes along throughout the word of God when God's people are tested old and new testament God does it to show them what's in their hearts that's why God tests it's a trial or a temptation or test it's all the same word in the original language and it means to get someone to the other side of something that's what it means so testing will reveal to you what's really going on in your heart because the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. And what he meant by that is, not that it can't be trusted, but we have this incredible ability to deceive ourselves. <laughs> Anyone done that before? I have. <laughs> and then the Holy Spirit says, "Yeah, you're not really seeing the true picture here because I didn't, didn't really want to see it. So the first thing is it shows us what's going on in our hearts. So God will take us through testing to find those vestiges of mistrust which are in our hearts. They're somewhere deep down in our hearts and God will do that. But the wonderful thing is that going through this process produces steadfastness. It produces steadfastness or fortitude or endurance and all these English words that are just expressing the same Greek word hupomone, which means steadfastness. In fact, um, it means to have an unswerving loyalty to a personal purpose. That's what hupomone means. An unswerving loyalty to a personal purpose in the face of trials. That's the important bit. It doesn't just mean loyal. It means to be loyal in the face of trials. And I love this um, verse 4 in the Good News translation. It says this, Make sure that your endurance, your steadfastness, carries you all the way without failing so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, this characteristic of fortitude and steadfastness will carry us in this life to where we need to be. And when when James is saying to be perfect, he doesn't mean sort of absolute perfection, i.e. spotless. He's on about being mature. It's a Greek word, teleos, and it means maturity. So when he says perfect, it means, in other words, to be fully mature. If you want to be mature as a believer in God, let endurance and fortitude carry you to that point. And it will. It will carry you if you allow the Spirit to do it in your heart. Just run with me to Romans 5, please. This is the last scripture I want to look at. Romans chapter 5. And we'll just look at verse 2. Just going to start halfway through. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, not only... But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So steadfastness, it not only carries us to maturity, but it produces character within us. But then Paul says here that that character itself produces hope now we've got two kinds of hope here in verse 2 we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and then Paul takes us through this journey of testing of trouble to come out the other side with a character within us that produces hope again so we come back to hope but now it's a different kind of hope it's a hope that's been tested and this is is the nuance of biblical hope, that we have a future hope, but God wants to turn it not just from hope, but into tested hope. In other words, we have a hope that's been through circumstances that contradict it, and yet still we believe. And that is God's process, and that's what he accomplishes in us, is that we end up with this tested hope. And God's given us lots of examples of this in his word, back at momentum again Roger mentioned these two examples abraham abraham had a hope in isaac and god says you need to put a knife in his chest and sacrifice him and abraham said to the servants we're going up the hill i'm going to say it's a hill not a mountain to worship and we and the boy me and the boy will come back now abraham could look beyond the moment when he killed isaac and believe that him and the boy would still come back he could see beyond the trial that was ahead of him, because he had hope, tested hope. And then we have Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were going into the fire and said to the king, even if we believe that God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship you. Now, before they went into the fire, They didn't know what was going to happen. We know, with the benefit of hindsight, that Jesus was waiting for them in the fire and would sustain them for as long as was necessary. But they didn't know that. But they could see beyond the fire out to the other side. They didn't know the outcome, and yet they trusted God. And bringing it back to us, this is where God wants us to get to, it's where He wants to bring us to. Is that we will face our own fire. We will face our own trial, but going into that, we can see beyond the trial, and we can still have that hope. And when we come out the other side each time, we now have hope that has been a little bit more tested and a little bit more fortified, because we've been through experiences that contradict the word of God, and yet God has still been faithful. Amen? This is where God wants us to get get us to. And I just want to just take a second, if you just close your eyes for a moment. David said this, Psalm 27, verse 13. This is in the Amplified. I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe each one of us needs to make a decision about our walk with him, about how we're going to let him lead us onwards from this point, about the areas which may be even that we don't know about, that we are holding back from him. And I'm not here to make that decision for you, but God has sent me to bring you to that decision point. There will be areas where you struggle to trust him. And you're going to keep coming back to them again and again because your father loves you and knows that he needs to deal with those consequences of sin. He needs to deal with that area of mistrust, that area where you feel you're weak in your faith. All he needs from us is to say, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing to go on that journey. I'm willing to face those things. And if we're willing, he will lead us and he will be with us and he will assure us. But it will not be easy. So take the decision with a sober mind but a heart that is simply longing to love him more. Father, I want to thank you that you have rescued us from sin in order to restore us to right relationship with you, Lord. Lord, none of us finds this easy, this this path of progression, this this growth path that you've set us on, none of us finds it easy to walk, Lord. And for each of us, there are personal things, very personal things. But Lord, today we are considering your ways and we're asking your Holy Spirit to show us the areas that are still infected with mistrust. Lord, we don't want them to persist. We want them gone. And we want the, the relationship that we have with you to be pure and innocent like a child. Lord, not spoiled by the mistrust that sin brings, that we would never doubt you, even in the moment of absolute crisis. So as David prayed, Lord, search our hearts and know us. See if there be any offensive way in us, Lord. And right now, lead us in the way everlasting in the name of jesus amen amen thank you thanks for joining us today search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching